Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. That was lovely. Also, I want to mention, if it hasn't been mentioned already, that if you want to get an angel from the angel tree, this is a prison fellowship ministry where, in effect, you adopt a child. The child will not know that you are the one giving the gift, but you will be substituting in for a parent of that child who is in prison and is involved in prison fellowship, which is a Christian ministry, and you can help make that family more close as a result at Christmas, and those are available in the foyer. Please take your Bible now, if you've lost your place, in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be looking at this familiar parable of Jesus about his coming again and how to get ready for it, how to live in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. John Greenleaf Whittier wrote these words. They're familiar to many of you, if not most of you. And these are the words which he wrote. He said, For all the sad words of mouth or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Once we live one moment, one day, there's no possibility of reliving it. Every day offers multiple opportunities for you and me to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Master, as we walk with Him in this world. And today we're going to look at the importance of making the most of every opportunity in our lives as people who follow Christ. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He goes on to say, Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and caps it off by saying, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we walk with Christ and we walk in the Spirit, in full dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God, then we have the likelihood of making every opportunity count, making the most of every opportunity. You're here today, and your presence would indicate you would have an interest in that, and this is part of what you're doing today together, together with God's people to worship in a place like this with that as a goal in your life. So let's take a look now at this passage, this great parable of the talents. Let me do some interpretation before we look at it in particular. The word talent is not what it means to us. Normally, when we think of a talent, we think of some sort of gift we have for doing something. Isn't that right? Whether it's playing a sport or playing a musical instrument or raising children or doing whatever, we tend to associate that word with that, and we're right to do so. A talent was a measurement of the weight of some valuable metal in biblical times. 
We don't know the exact value of silver at this time or gold, but it was not a whole lot from our perspective, but it would be a whole lot if the people living today had this same kind of measurement attached to their use of what God had given them in the way of opportunity. So let's keep that in mind. It's not about money per se. Just think opportunity when you think of talents. Opportunity to bring glory to God and to make your life count. I'm assuming everybody here not only wants to make the most of every opportunity, but you want your life to count. And this is where we begin. Let's think about some things which are true of people who want to make the most of every opportunity and are seen as Christ as such people. The first thing we see in this parable, from my viewpoint at least, you'll see it a little differently perhaps, but is that such people are dependable. Three men who were slaves, not simply servants, but slaves of the master in question. And let me pause for a moment and let you know that the state of slavery was not quite as severe as we might think of it in our day and time, looking back over our country's history. We know that slavery is not anything that can be justified in any era, but some slaves were able in biblical times to accumulate their own wealth. It would not be a great amount, but they could earn money in some circumstances. But these people were given opportunity to take their master's money and then parlay it into something more. And the scripture tells us, look at verse 15, 14 rather, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, is the it refers to, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. The master had every reason to believe that these three individuals were dependable individuals. They were trustworthy, and so he gave them this opportunity to multiply a certain amount of money for the master's use at his discretion. And he goes away after having distributed the money. So these men were dependable men. At least on the surface, they seemed to be dependable. Christ, if you are a follower of him, deems you dependable. He gives us a stewardship of all the talents, gifts, everything he puts into our possession, understanding that we, like these three men in the parable, have a master. It is Jesus himself. He is the Lord. The Bible says, what do you not know that you have been bought with a price and you are not your own? So glorify God in your body. As surely as these three men in question were slaves answering to a master, so we are. Blessed slavery to be the slave of Jesus though, right? Unbelievable. This master whom we have, he would never do anything to harm us. In fact, he could not do anything that will ultimately harm us. It is true that Jesus disciplines us when we need it because he knows there's something that needs to be corrected in our lives. 
In fact, in Revelation 3.19, this is what Jesus himself says. Those whom I love, I reprove, and that means gets on to us, as we would say where I grew up, gets after us, and disciplines us. It's a function of the love of God. The Father does this, so does Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. I'm so grateful that he tries and accomplishes everything that he tries to make me more obedient to him so that I would fulfill my purpose in life. We talked about how God will fulfill his purpose for us last Sunday. We talked about that. But the Lord wants dependable people, and those people are the ones who make the most of every opportunity that he places before them. Here's another observation I've made as I've thought this passage through in preparation for today. Such people who are good stewards of what our master Jesus have given to us are like these first two slaves, the one who received five, transferred that into five more, doubled his investment that the master gave him to do something with that was productive, and then number two got two, and he did likewise. He doubled also. We know the one who got one, he was disappointed that he didn't get more than one. He was comparing himself to the others. This is important for us to understand. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, we are foolish if we compare ourselves with one another. There's no place for that kind of comparison. Now, we can look for good role models in the church. There's nothing wrong with that. But always remember that if we see anything positive in another, in the way that person represents Christ, that it's Christ in them by his spirit that makes that possible. It's one short step and a perilous one at that. When we start idolizing people in the church who are walking with the Lord, it's a dead end for you if you do that, but it's also bad for the person whom you put on a pedestal. There's only one pedestal that is to be in the church of Jesus Christ for only one person, isn't it? And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Well, these people were hardworking, the first two. The implication is rather clear. Look at verse 20. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents when the master returned, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. The idea conveyed with this one word, which is translated have gain, is the idea of he went to work immediately. And he used every legitimate means possible to gain for his master. And we have this opportunity too. We do it by serving. The Christian life, being saved, we are saved to be servants of the Lord. And quite frankly, I know most of you know this because you seek to serve the Lord. We are most satisfied as human beings who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and made children of God. We are most satisfied when we are serving our Lord and bringing honor and glory to Him. It's work, isn't it? 
Be sure we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I hope you know that. You can't work your way into heaven. Nobody can. But right after that, the verse that always comes to my mind when I think about this matter is Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Imagine that. God knows what his plan is for us, and it includes doing good works. So as we let our light shine, people outside the body of Christ and inside will see our good works, and they will give glory to God. Praise the Lord for that possibility. So, people who make their lives count are people who are dependable people. Dependable and the Lord can give us opportunities, which he does, and diligent. We work hard. The one who is not given a commendation here, in verse 26, we see what Jesus says to him. His master answered after he had said, I'm afraid, and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And he gave it back to him, no interest or anything. And he says, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. So the good news for us is we can make our lives count. And we do it by doing the work that God has given us to do. Now the next characteristic I'm going to mention, maybe I should have dealt with it first, but we'll spend a little more time here. It's the idea of being dependent we who are slaves of the Lord, servants of the Lord, we who will accomplish what he gives us to do and will do it for him and will enjoy doing it for him and we won't feel put upon, we are people who have a dependence on the Lord. Notice the way in which these two individuals who doubled what they were given Notice the way that they related to Jesus or to this man who is representative of Jesus. Master, it's the word Lord, actually, the word that's typically in the New Testament translated by Lord. And so they rec recognized that they were to be submitted to him and they were to do his bidding. And so are we. I begin to think about some of the great figures in biblical history who were called the servant of God. I thought of Abraham in the book of Genesis, chapter 26, verse 24. Abraham is called the servant of God. I thought about Moses. Moses, too, in more than one place, but I'm referring to Daniel 9, 11, is described as the servant of God. I also thought about King David in 1 Kings 3, 6. He is described as the servant of God. And actually, David, at the end of Psalm 143, concludes that beautiful psalm by saying, I am your servant. He was pleased to have that relationship with God. He knew even though he was king of Israel, his primary way of thinking properly about himself was servant. Joshua, who succeeded Moses, 
Joshua in Judges chapter 2, verse 8, is described as the servant of God. I could go on and on. Not every figure in the Bible is described by someone else as the servant of God, but very many of them are. Now, we know that none of them was perfect, but they were servants of God. Do you know the, I think, the greatest compliment that we could have passed on us by God is, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you agree? That's what we hope to hear when we stand before the Lord on the day that Jesus comes back and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. Dependent people. But we're not into cookie-cutter thinking here. Not everybody's the same, correct? And in this passage of Scripture, verse 15, let's look at it again. And no one, he, and to one rather, he gave five talents to another two and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on a journey. Talents, I have said, my working definition of that would be opportunities that God gives us. Ability is that skill set it could be a natural talent, a spiritual gift, or a combination of the two. God has given us as His servants the equipment in terms of the tools to go about doing what we are to do, to bring glory and honor to Him, and multiplying what He's given us to be stewards of. Our lives in general and many other ways we can think of it. I skipped one figure that's called the servant of God so I could come back to him at this moment. It's Caleb. In Numbers 14, 24, Caleb is described as the servant of God. He's also described in this way. Caleb is described as a man in whom there was a different kind of spirit. I would propose to you it was the Holy Spirit that was being spoken of. The Holy Spirit. And it went on to say that Caleb fully obeyed the Lord. Last week we saw how there's importance of our showing obedience to the Spirit of God and to God the Father and to God the Son. That is an expression of our being filled with the Holy Spirit because we want to please them. And Jesus says, for instance, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But there is diversity. Let me mention a few names, biblical names, some of which are not too familiar to you, but hopefully they will be after I have finished this listing of people. Epaphras. Epaphras is not a household name, even in Christian homes. And he shows up in the book of Colossians, First of all, in the seventh verse of the first chapter, as Paul is speaking and introducing the people that are important to the letter that he writes, he mentions Epaphras, and he calls him the servant of God. The, and he doesn't just say servant. He says the faithful servant of the Lord. Remember, we're talking about faithfulness today. Faithful, dependable servant of God. And then a little later in that same epistle, in the fourth chapter, the twelfth verse, he describes him as one who serves by wrestling for 
the Colossian believers wrestling in prayer for them. In other words, interceding for them. And this, I think, is one of those wonderful, I would say, gifts that the Lord gives to some people. The gift and the heart for interceding. What I've discovered when I've explored this more fully is that most people with this gift of intercession really are people with the mercy gift. They have such a heart for the people of God. And they have a heart that melts, especially when people are suffering some sort of loss in their lives. The loss of a relationship through death or divorce or some other fracturing of that relationship. The loss of health, the loss of financial capacity, and on and on. People who have the mercy gift have an uncommon ability to minister to people. It's a wonderful gift. Have you ever been ministered to somebody with the gift of mercy? It's awesome, isn't it, to be on the receiving end of that? And if you have such a gift, that's one of these abilities, I would say, supernatural, albeit that the Lord has given you, and you need to serve him with gladness in that. Also, there's a man named Onesimus who's mentioned in Colossians 4.9. Now, Onesimus, you may recall, was a slave. He was owned by Philemon. Philemon was a believer in Jesus Christ, and Onesimus ran away. He skedaddled from where he lived in Colossae, and he made his way to Rome. Rome was a refuge for runaway slaves. There were so many people there, it, there was no way to keep up with who was free and who was not. So he went there perhaps even trying to run away from Philemon because Philemon may have begun to teach the gospel to him, but he ran right smack dab into the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, who was the spiritual father of Philemon, became the spiritual father of Onesimus. And he told Onesimus, I want you to go back, make it right with Philemon. And this letter, read it carefully. Read the letter from Paul to Philemon. It's a beautiful letter of advocating for Onesimus. And by the way, later on in the history of this region, it, we have biblical evidence around the turn of the first century A.D. that there was a man named Onesimus who became the bishop of the church in Ephesus. Many scholars believe, and I would side with them, that this man went back, made amends with his master. His master saw the flaw in one human owning another and set him free, and this man Onesimus rose to a position of great importance in the church of Jesus Christ. He was a faithful servant of the Lord. Stephen, Stephen is one of the seven mentioned in the book of Acts, and he's described as a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was a faithful man, this man Stephen was. And he was used mightily, you would think, because he's one of the prototypical deacons to minister to the Greek-speaking Jewish who had come from other places in the Mediterranean world for the Passover and then stayed probably for Pentecost, and they got saved on the day of Pentecost. And it created a real problem because the 
Hebrew-speaking, really Aramaic-speaking Jewish widows who'd become Christians, they said, hey, we are at the top of the food chain as far as Christians are concerned because we are descended from Abraham. So let us get our food first, and if there's any left over, you Hellenistic Jewish women who are widows, that means Greek-speaking, you can get the leftovers. Well, that was not right. And so the apostles were spending all their time selling disputes, and the Lord said to them, look, get some men who were men of faith, trustworthy men, and help get them to help you deal with this. And Stephen was such a man. But Stephen was not simply caught up in what was good. He was doing the will of the Lord. He was doing one of those good works prepared in advance for him to do. But he was also preaching the gospel. And people were getting saved after Pentecost. God was using him. He was demonstrating signs and wonders. He was preaching the gospel with great effect. And it really irritated the members of the Sanhedrin to the extent that they arrested him. They brought him before the council. And he gives in the seventh chapter, if you've never read the seventh chapter of Acts, read it carefully. It's a beautiful history of Israel. But then he gets down to the point where Christ is crucified, and he said, you're the guys who did it. And he read them the right act. It didn't go over very well with them. I'm sure you know that. And it resulted in his being stoned, stoned to death. But he was faithful to the end, wasn't he? In fact, you know his parting words? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Interesting. Just like Jesus. And he saw, the Bible says, he saw Jesus in heaven. He had a glimpse into heaven as he was dying a martyr's death. He had a glimpse into heaven, and he saw Jesus standing. It's the only time we see Jesus Christ standing in heaven. He's already seated in the heavenlies. But what, what does he do? It, he was so moved. Jesus was. He was interceding extremely fervently, I'm sure. And he was looking forward to the soon coming of this one who was such a good, faithful servant. Stephen. Stephen was an evangelist. And he was a man who was fearless in his service to the Lord. Barnabas, I, I really like Barnabas. Do you like Barnabas? His real name was Joseph. And Barnabas is a nickname, actually. It means son of encouragement. He was so encouraging. Do you like to be around encouraging people? We all do, don't we? And when they're spiritual people and they're encouraging us, sometimes they say things that are a little disturbing to us. They pinpoint problems in our lives. They care enough about us. But for the most part, people with the gift... They, they just know how to give you the right kind of word at the right time to lift you up. It's very wonderful to think about. Maybe you have a gift of encouragement. Barnabas had another gift too, giving. He sold a piece of property, gave all the proceeds so that there would be nobody in the fledgling church who had to beg it was all there for them. This is the heart of such a man. Some of you have the gift of giving in the church, too. Many of you have perhaps the gift of intercession, like Epaphras. Or maybe you're a good personal evangelist, 
like Stephen, or maybe you have leadership skills like Joshua, or maybe you are a prophet, as it were, like Moses. You know, when the children of Israel came through the Red Sea without a scratch, and they weren't even wet, when they got on the other side and they all got on the shore, what did God do? He closed the waters over, and not one of Pharaoh's soldiers survived. In the 15th chapter of Exodus, Moses recorded a psalm. It's in our psalms, too. It's a beautiful psalm. He recorded this psalm. His sister, I'm not trying to be ugly about her at all, but she was kind of irascible, to say the least. His sister Miriam was leading a band made up of tambourine players. Now, I can't even play a tambourine. So I'm not critical of anybody who tries to play music, so don't mishear. But while she was playing the tambourine, he had disciplined himself enough to learn how to write and take the gift that God gave him and make it into something that we even today, we still benefit. It's in the Word of God. Wonderful to think about it, isn't it? About this man, Moses. Some of you have such gifts. I think he's described as a prophet, among other things. Some of you have a gift of prophecy. I'm not talking about foretelling the future. I'm talking about sometimes God speaks things to your heart that you speak to others. It's, it's very closely aligned with the gift of exhortation slash encouragement. But some people have a word from the Lord for a specific moment in other people's lives in the body of Christ. Some of you have that. Faith, of course. Abraham was a great man of faith, as was Caleb. Caleb, remember, was one of two, along with Joshua, out of 12 spies, and really out of 603,550 men, he and Joshua were the only two who were men of faith. That's a small minority, isn't it? But God used him in faith. Now look, are you supposed to be a person of faith? Let me just ask you, do you believe it's true that you and I are to be people of faith? We know that. Thank you for that amen. Thank you, Devin. I knew it came from over here. Because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. We all exercise faith, correct? Yes. Do you think we all have a responsibility to share Jesus Christ? Well, I think so. We will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and will we be his witnesses. Christ didn't reserve that for the apostles. It's for all of us. It's our privilege and our responsibility, given this situation, to represent Christ through sharing the gospel with people. Praying for people. The Bible says, pray for one another in the fifth chapter of James. That's not for a special deluxe edition of Christians. Pray for one another. We're to do that. We're to give, all of us. Some of us don't have the gift of giving. Most of us don't. But we are to give as God directs us in his word and leads us by his spirit. Are we encourage each other? Why, yes. The Bible says in Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that your hearts may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Whenever you have the impulse to encourage somebody. Don't worry how they'll receive it. Just pick up the phone and call them. 
have a meeting where you can go out and get coffee with someone and say, I just sense the Lord wants me to encourage you. Encourage people. But some people have this unique kind of gifting for sure. Now, all these people I've mentioned are males. Do women get bypassed on this? Hardly. I think of the one woman that stands out in my mind as the greatest, and I'm not the final authority on that, but I would say Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, look, Mary is not the co-redemptrix. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. But anyone who pays careful attention to the encounter that Mary had with Gabriel when Gabriel the archangel comes to her and informs her that she's going to bear the Son of God and he's going to be the one who saves the world. Anybody who thinks about that and then looks at the way in which she responded at first, what was her first response when Gabriel told her this was going to happen? She said, how can this be? I have never known a man. And then he explained this would be a conception that would come when the Spirit of God would interact with her and she would become pregnant without having known a man. And finally, she ends up by saying, as she gives her reasons why she doesn't think she's the right person, what does she say? Behold, do it to your handmaiden as you sow, may it be done to your handmaiden as you would have it be done, God. And then she conceived, and when she realized that she was with child, she decided to make a trip to be with her cousin, Elizabeth. But before that, she composed a beautiful song, the Magnificat. It's recorded in Luke 1. And if you study that, and look at it. And if you have a book, Bible rather, that has cross-referencing in it some way, and you begin to see how many different verses from what we call the Old Testament she drew upon to give this beautiful, wonderful declaring of the glory of God and what was happening to her. This woman didn't have the benefit of going to synagogue school because she was female. But she had had someone teach her the Word of God. And she memorized it. And she had a gift. And we have it in the Scripture. She, like Moses, wrote it out. And we have the benefit of it now. And many women today have such gifts. Not Scripture. We, none of us can write Scripture. But we have things we can share with other people about the glory of God writing and music and so forth and so on, Mary. And then at the end of Luke 23, in the first part of Luke 24, Jesus is resurrected, a gathering of women from Galilee who had come with Jesus and the apostles from Galilee where their headquarters were at Capernaum. And they came down knowing Jesus fully knew and he had said in so many ways, hey, this is, this is it. I'm going to be killed here by the leaders. And they came with the Lord Jesus, and they 
included Mary Magdalene and a woman named Joanna, another Mary, the mother of James. We don't know if this is speaking of the mother of John and James, the sons of Zebedee. Maybe it was the other James, James the less he is called, since John's name doesn't show up. And then other women. And these women did things to make life comfortable for these men in the sense of being there, and many of them supported them financially. So we see so many people in the Bible who are servants of the Lord, don't we? Can you begin to get a picture in your own mind about yourself and how you can be a faithful servant of the Lord? It's not just for a handful of people. Don't let the devil cheat you out of being a faithful servant of the Lord by suggesting that it's only for an elite group of people. It's for all of us who know Christ to be in on this great joy of serving the Lord. Well, there's some dividends too, aren't they? They're here in this passage of Scripture. When the, the master returns, verse 19, it says, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The fulfillment of that statement for us comes true in this life many times. Sometimes it doesn't. And quite frankly, I have at times in my life, when I was younger especially, I would do the foolish thing and compare myself to others who are in similar roles that I found myself in. The Bible's real clear. 2 Corinthians 10:12 says, stop it. It's foolish when you compare yourselves with others. And I have done that. But what happens is when we do that, let's just put ourselves in the position of the man who got two. And he doubled his as well, didn't he? He made 200% gain just like the other guy did. And when the time came to give away the one talent that the lazy, wicked slave didn't do anything with except dig a hole in the ground and bury, and... I would have thought if I were telling the story, that would have gone to the guy who had four. So he could have at least five because the other guy's got ten. That's the way we think, isn't it? But in his wisdom, God tells that the master representative of Christ gives it to the one who had ten. Does that mean the one who had ten was better? No. They both were equally faithful. But for some reason, God chooses to give some people more opportunity than he does others. And we need to learn the importance of being satisfied, not in the sense of not wanting to glorify the Lord. We should not slow down at all in our seeking to be in sync with the Lord, walking in the Spirit, looking for opportunity every day. But we have no say-so in the notoriety that comes with that. And let me just stop here and say this. The Bible says that a man, it says the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, a man 
is evaluated, tested by the praise he received. It would be for women as well. So we need to understand, just because you get more accolades and more attention, it makes you no better, but it makes you more susceptible to pride. I'll tell you that. And so we need to be grateful for who we are in Christ, first and foremost. We all are on equal standing in Christ. But also, be grateful that he's given you an assignment in the kingdom, and you are to carry it out and let him sort all that out in eternity. And we are going to be people who will be grateful that we did approach this situation in this way. Greater responsibility comes sometimes in this world before we leave it. But certainly when we leave this world, there'll be greater responsibility that comes to those who parlay whatever opportunities God gives us. And he gives them to all of us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be told, be very careful then. Make the most of every opportunity. And this parable would not be told to us either. And he goes on to say, I will put you in charge of many things on earth and probably in the heavenly realm too. That remains somewhat of a mystery. We know there are rewards in heaven. And I think it would be safe to say it's going to be a continuation in some way of the way in which we serve the Lord on earth. And then enter into the joy of your master. It's easy to go over that. Think about that. The joy of the Lord, the Bible says, is our strength. That's in Nehemiah 8.10. That was said about Yahweh, Jehovah, and Jesus is Jehovah become a person, right? So we understand that. But think about the joy of the Lord. As I was pondering that, how is it going to be in heaven for me and you? And I began to think about what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 2. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning at shame before he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, we have no way to appreciate the level of pain he endured. Spiritual pain, separated from God for what seemed like an eternity when God the Father turned his back on him because he had been made sin on our behalf. Guess who made him sin? His Father made him sin. And he had to endure that separation from the Father and all the indignities associated with crucifying, the brutality of being crucified. You've heard people describe the awfulness of that heinous kind of killing of a person, executing a person. Jesus felt all of that in his humanity. He felt the estrangement from God the Father because of his having become sin to take our punishment for him. He felt all that, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul talks about what is our joy? What is our crown? And he goes on to say, is it not you Thessalonian Christians, people whom the Lord used us to share Christ with, and you came to know Jesus? And so we enter in 
to the joy of the Lord when we follow him and we submit ourselves to him and we cast caution to the wind and we're willing to follow him without making any kind of deal with the Lord. We can't make deals with God. I hope you know that. We just ask him what he wants us to be and to do and if we're wise, we surrender to him in that. We must look at what is said in the interchange beginning with verse 24 between the returning master and the lazy, wicked slave. Look at verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you had to be a hard man. Let me stop here. The word hard... Are you familiar with the disease scleroderma? Have you ever known anyone with the disease scleroderma? It's a connective tissues disease. And what happens inside a person and outside, the skin hardens, but the internal organs harden. It's a long, slow death. The word scleros is the word that's used here. This word scleros means, I know you're a hard man. Just think hard like scleroderma would make somebody in the physical realm. It's a word which this man used to describe his master. He didn't have a high view of the master, did he? A hard man. You drive a hard bargain. Our Lord is not a hard man, but he is a just man. We know that. We see his justice reflected in this parable. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. That doesn't even come close to Jesus, does it? Not at all. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. The interest of the day at this time, we know this from accurate sources in that time frame, about 12% simple interest. That's pretty good interest, isn't it? I'd go for that today, wouldn't you? be awesome. And so that would be a good return. But he, Jesus wants us to do things his way. And our lives are going to redound to the glory of God throughout the ages if we understand what this parable teaches. It's not like some grandiose thing. It's just simply listening to God and doing what he tells us. It's spelled out in the Bible. It's not complicated in Scripture. We serve Him with gladness, and we serve Him with fear, is what the writers of the Psalms say. We fear Him, and that means give ultimate respect to Him. Humble ourselves, obey Him with great joy, without grousing and complaining about Him. And then look at what Jesus says. Verse 26, his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. Had you ever equated laziness with wickedness? Well, the authority on what is wicked is Jesus. And he does. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered to seed. No seed. Well, that was sarcastic, of course. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, he's talking to somebody here. It's there, some other servants. 
Take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away and cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not a pretty picture, is it? And it's a place of no return. We need to be careful as we think about this. This man never knew the Lord, probably. I don't think there's any way. In Matthew, if you go to Matthew 13, we won't go there today. You go on your own and read about the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds. And you'll see where Jesus says, in the church, there will always be people who profess faith in Jesus, but are falsely professing. They really don't know. We don't know who they are, but we know they're in the church. And the good news for us is, heed the warning of the Lord in this parable. If you don't know Christ, maybe you've been baptized, maybe more than one time, maybe you've declared your faith, but in your heart you know you haven't yielded to his lordship. Today could be the day of your salvation, and I trust you will. The last thing I'm going to say before we pray is remember something else that Solomon said. Solomon says, a faithful man who can find. In Proverbs 20, verse 6, there aren't many faithful people. Then he goes on to say this. He says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Write them on the tablets of your hearts. We need to emblazon the love of God and understand it and the faithfulness of God. And we need to be men and women who love God with all our heart, love our neighbor as ourselves, and then we are faithful to Him. In faithfulness, we serve Him for His glory. Let's pray. If you have not given your life to Christ and you think God's talking to you about that, today would be the day for you to pray and ask Jesus to forgive you for not yielding to his lordship. Jesus, we ask that you would show us if we need you in our lives. And Lord, we want to say we want you in our lives and we want to serve you, Lord, once you come into our hearts and forgiven us of our sin. We want to serve you with a whole heart and honor you and fulfill the purpose for which you created us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.